Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you here today. Our key scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. It's in the bulletin in front of you, and I'll be reading it here for you today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And then here comes verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What a loaded statement that happens to be. Christians for years have wrestled with verse 48, for centuries even, hoping it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, And so we try to find ways around this particular verse. But the problem is this particular verse occurs in the middle of a string of teaching where Jesus makes it extremely clear that we are supposed to be something other than ourselves. It's almost like he says to me, Bryce, you're all right. But what I really want for you is to not be yourself. And, and he, he does this in such an annoying and needling sort of way here in this passage that we just read because he takes away from us our right to be angry at other people. He takes away for us, from us the right to choose he will love and not love. And then, as if, it weren't, as if that weren't bad enough... He then throws out this, I can only imagine what is this said in this sarcastic tone, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And and he used those people as an example because they were looked down on as really not the best example of moral superiority within that culture. And he basically says, you are not to hate people, you are not to hate your enemies, you are to love your enemies, and if you think it's okay for you to love the people that just love you, well, that's actually nothing. That's actually nothing. Even the most bankrupt in your society can do that. And then he takes us to verse 48, which says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so we wonder, right? We struggle, we... What is it that he's telling us here? Well, God does, in fact, want us to be like him in every way, shape, and form. God, in fact, created us to be like him and put his own breath of life into our bodies. God would like for us to be perfect as he is perfect. The problem is the church and Christianity in general has taken this verse and in some ways it has begun to underscore what the Christian life is about. 
Be perfect as God is perfect. And at some point along the line, this message has gotten out from Christians to people who are not Christians is that we are perfect. And you should be like us. The truth we know couldn't be any further from that statement. And yet there are people who think that that is what Christianity is about. But here's the dirty secret. God, who told us through Jesus to be perfect as he is perfect, he also is smart enough to be aware that this is something that it's not possible for us to do. And so when we as Christians act like we are perfect, we are not living up to the call that God has put in front of us. Because even though God is calling us to be like him, he also shows us that he is a God who loves us, as this next song is going to say, recklessly. This is something that maybe you've never thought of before when you've thought about the love of God. But God loves us recklessly, meaning he puts his own heart at risk every single time. And in fact, he puts his own heart at risk knowing that the love he has to give to humanity may not, could not, will not be returned. We talk about God's love for us being overwhelming. But this morning, as we think about this call to be like him, as we think about what people outside of the church think about the church and about Christians, as we think about what it means to be perfect, perhaps these words will encourage us. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, it chases me down, fights till I'm found and leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But still, you give your life away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Dismiss our kids, so the instructions are up there on the board. All right. I kind of want to go. Wonder if they have snacks back there. Trellis, they have snacks back there. Yeah, goldfish. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, this is sort of a, a, a weird Sunday for us. This is what I like to call a standalone Sunday, uh, which means that we finished a series last week. Next week is Praise in the Park. The week after that is Mexico. So there was not really time to like start something new or to, um, you know, sort of go way out. So uh, I realized, though, as I was preparing this week, that I've had the opportunity to speak at a couple of things this year. 
um, at Pepperdine and something in Sacramento and at another church. And so I decided I haven't shared this with you. And uh, um, so that's what I'm going to do. If you've heard some of it before, too bad. Um, You probably don't remember, although it may strike a chord uh, once we get into some of this. But I hope that you are sitting uh, relatively close to people that uh, you can at least tolerate. And by I say tolerate, I mean you're willing to talk to for a few minutes here because uh, there might be some conversation that we need to have today. So this is a question that I've been asking for about the last two years. And uh, I actually don't think I've ever asked you guys this question. Uh, so, but we'll see here, okay? And uh, so the question is this. Does God want us to be broken or does God want us to be strong? So I want you to take a moment with the people that you are sitting close to and discuss this question with them. Does God want us to be broken or does God want us to be strong? Ready? Go. Can I already tell you're all going to cheat? So I've asked this question in a ton of different environments. I've asked high school students. I've asked junior high students. I've asked adults who act like high school students. Uh, I've asked this question in a lot of different settings. And uh, I think it's a really, really important question. And it's not just an important question to us, but who have a relationship with Jesus, but it's also an important question to those who do not have a relationship with Jesus. Because this question, to a degree, gets down to the core of how we understand ourselves, how we understand God, and it also affects how people understand us because the answer to this question has an effect on what we put out into the world. Does God want us to be broken or does God want us to be strong? Now, we would like potentially for this to be a simple question to answer, as if it is one or the other or as if one is very clearly the answer and the other clearly isn't. But the more you think about this question, I hope, the more confusing it gets. The more confusing it gets. You can always tell a question is good. When the question seems plain on the surface, but gets more confusing the longer you think about it. Um, Now, why does this question matter? And in particular, why does it matter to people who may be outside the community of Jesus? And it matters for this reason. Um, This is the community of Jesus. Okay? 
So Jesus is in the middle of this community, but what we have tended to do over time is to do this. There's a circle around Jesus. And the important question that Christianity has tried to answer for years and years and years and years and years and years is what? Who's in the circle and who's out of the circle? Right? Now, the answer to that question of who is in the circle and who is out of the circle is one that has changed over the years. So let me just ask you this question. Who gets to choose who is in the circle and who is out of the circle? Jesus. G- oh, okay, let's, let's get it out of the way. God gets to decide who's in the circle and who's out of the circle. But we are not being completely honest if we say that's the answer. Now, we may believe that that's the answer. But what have we shown ourselves to do over time? That it's not as simple as who God says is in or who God says is out. I mean, even the criteria that churches themselves use to decide what God says about who is in and who is out differ from one church to another. Even within churches of Christ, which are a terribly small branch of Christianity, there is more than one flavor. And churches of Christ themselves have decided that some people are not in if they support foreign missionaries and have a kitchen in their building. Churches of Christ themselves have decided that some Christians aren't in if they use instruments in their worship or if they allow women to participate in worship in a certain way. We have drawn our own lines. And here's the thing. This is the core challenge, right? No matter which Christian community you talk to that has drawn lines, that has drawn their circle around Jesus, what are they going to say they base their line drawing line drawing on the Bible and God. They're all going to say that, by and large. And we have become, at times more so, at times less so, fixated with that question. So we say the criteria belongs to God and belongs to Jesus. But then the question of, so then, the people who belong to Jesus and belong to God are the ones who get to be in the circle and everyone else is not. But how do we decide and how do we determine who is actually in and who is actually out? Now, I, I, wanna, I know that I'm running in circles here and I'm doing it on purpose, but I, I want you to know one very simple thing, okay? We can with confidence know if we belong to Jesus or not. Okay? So the point of this exercise is not to keep you guessing. The point of the exercise is to say who gets to decide who's in the circle and who is not. And how we answer that question is important. And how we answer that question about does God want us to be broken or does God want us to be strong may determine our answer to who's inside the circle and who is not. You with me? 
Does God want us to be broken or does God want us to be strong? The answer we give to that question may determine who we say can be inside the circle and who can't. Let me give you a biblical example. Okay? In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking through uh, the town. They come to the town and there's a man at the gate who was born blind. Okay? And the disciples see this man who was born blind and there was a question that they asked Jesus. The question they asked Jesus was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? So, the disciples did something that we might tend to do. Maybe. And that is, they looked at someone who was in a bad situation, being born blind is pretty rough, and what could they not answer? They ask this question, but why do they ask this question? The question is, who sinned this man or his parents so that he was born this way? What is the question they're really trying to answer? Who's in or who's out? And they're looking at God, and they're walking around with Jesus, who is the living embodiment of the love of God. And what is something they can't accept? That if God loves people, then why was this guy born blind? The only answer can be what? That somebody did something wrong so that he was born this way. They're looking for some answers to this truth. Who is in, who is out. And if something is wrong or something is irreparable or something is broken and has been all along, then clearly this person or someone this person is related to must be out and not in, because this doesn't happen to people who are in. You with me? It's a tough question, and Jesus says, well, none of those things happened. (laughs) None of it is like that. Stick around, he says, and I'll show you what it's like. You could argue, though, that we don't look at things this way anymore, that we are not like, for example, the Pharisees who were alive and active during the time of Jesus. And the Pharisees loved the law. They loved the law with all of their hearts. They loved the law so much that they built laws to protect the law, so that there were laws upon laws upon laws. But at some point within their practice of religion, their love of God, it became so fixated on what you did and what you didn't do and whether you were right in this way or wrong. And they were so fixated on that question. Who is in and who is out? And for them, the, que- the answer to the question was so clear because all you had to do was look at what someone did and how they did it. And if they stepped over the line or they did something wrong, then they were clearly what? Out. But if they kept the law, like the Pharisees kept the law, then they were in. So you could argue that we're not really that way anymore. But we may be, and it all depends on how we answer that first question. Does God want us to be strong or does God want us to be broken? I reserve the right to switch those words as many times as I want, by the way. Broken make him first, strong make him first. That's within, that's within my right. <clears throat> 
So it leads me to this question. What is the image that we most often project? Okay, let me, I'm going to phrase the question in two ways. So it, it ties together, but there's two parts to this. What is the image that we most often project to the culture that we live in? And I want to tie to that question. What is the impression that the culture that we live in most often has about us as Christians? Hmm... You don't know? What? Yeah, give me an answer. They think we think we're perfect. They think we think we're perfect. Why do they think that? Because we come off as judgmental. Let me give you a little example from my own history. When I uh, first left Pepperdine, I went to work in Arlington, Virginia as a youth minister, and I was there for about four years. And I got there, and I didn't know anybody. So this is true. You ready for a sad Bryce story? Okay, if, we're gonna, if I'm going to do the sad Bryce story, you all need to practice say this with me. You ready? Oh, okay, good, good. We're not there yet. Um, so I was in Arlington, Virginia, and uh, I used to, because I didn't know anyone, I didn't have any friends, I just kind of knew some people at church, I would go to the mall, and I would walk around the mall just to be around other people. Aww. I know, right? Sad Bryce. Um, so while I was in the mall, I was offered a job. And uh, a clothing company, which will remain nameless, uh, asked me if I wanted to work there, and I said, sure. And there were a whole bunch of other like college students that worked there. So, you know, you're meeting everybody, and you're talking to everyone, and everyone's like, you know, oh, you're nice. So I'm over on the men's side of the store, and there's a women's side of the store, and I'm folding T-shirts or something. And they say, oh, where did you graduate from school, or where are you going to school? I'm like, graduate from Pepperdine. And they're like, cool, what are you doing out here? I said, I'm a youth minister at a church. And they said, oh, and left to the other side of the store. Immediately, walk to the other side of the store. I'm like, I'm just going to fold these shirts then. Holy Spirit, give me the power to fold these shirts, right? That was this person's knee-jerk reaction. Now, why? Why was that this person's reaction? She had no problem with me up till that point. But the moment that I said I was a Christian and furthermore worked for a church, what did she think was going to happen? that I was going to start talking to her about what was wrong with her, about what she needed to change, that I would somehow invite her to a Bible study or something, that, I mean, maybe I just want to get coffee. Like, Christians like coffee too. You know, I don't know. Like it, but there are all these things. And so when we look at how culture views us, whether it's something we're putting out there or whether it's something that we're not, I think Trellis is onto something. There is this idea that Christians think they are perfect. Or at the very least, if we want to water that down a little bit, there's this idea that, Christian think, that Christians think they do everything the right way. Okay? So, what then does culture think when they look at us? What are some words they have used to describe us? Well, the two that are the most obvious are hypocritical and judgmental. We are judgmental because we look down on everyone. We're hypocritical because we think we do everything right. And they know we don't do everything right. What, now, here's my real question, because I wonder about this. I want you to think about this, too, because we all go out into the world as Christians. We talk to people about God. We want to talk to our friends about Jesus. We want to do all those things. So here's the question that really that, that gets under my skin. 
I know most of you pretty well. And I feel like most of you don't act like you're perfect. So how, how is this idea getting out there then? And I think it gets down to something that actually is within us. As Christians, we feel like we must project strength. We must have answers. We must know what's going on. We must know why it's going on. We need to be unshaken by things that are around us. Because whether we believe it or not, these things that are sort of based within our faith and within things we want to have, sometimes I think they come across as cold to the world outside of us. Because the one thing we are not doing with the world outside of Christianity is we are not engaging them on what is difficult for us or why something is a struggle for us, or why there may be no answer to this. We don't go that way. Why? Because we're afraid of not having the answers. And we have turned somehow, like Christianity and sharing faith with others is giving them the answers to everything, and it's God. But you and I know that figuring out how God answers a lot of questions takes decades and not minutes. Am I right? Now here's something that is especially telling. How good are, we can only speak about our community, you can speak in your head about other communities you've been in, do Christian communities like to share their sins openly with one another? Not so much. Why? Because you're afraid of being judged. Get this. This is the key. It doesn't feel safe. Can you believe that? It does not feel safe within the Christian community to share what's really wrong and what you really can't figure out, and what you really can't get around. Now, why is that? Shame and judgment. And And so we all come to church every week projecting what? Strength. We come projecting strength. That we have answers, that we know what's going on, So here's the deal. If the Christian community itself is a place that is not safe for people to be open and real, then how would we expect people outside the Christian community to think we're safe for them to come with whatever's going on in their life? There's a disconnect, yeah? So we can't necessarily control what message or what messages people are getting about Christianity. I mean, I have gotten into discussions with people over time that have wanted me to answer for the Crusades. And it's like, I can't. I can't answer for the Crusades. Um, 
But I do have some say over how you understand me and how other people understand me. And it gets down to this base question for me. What do I want to project to people? Do I want to project strength? Or do I want to project brokenness? Now, I believe uh, very much, very, very much, that we as human beings cannot be trusted with strength. And we've proved it over and over again. You know, we went through the story for 10 years, and... um, we saw it come up again in the narrative over and over again. And, and maybe, maybe you remember, right, that, that when things started to go well, God was on their side, right? So they call out to God, God's on their side, things start to go well, they have the power of God in them, they're doing amazing things, but then what happens? Once they get strong, they forget about God. And they start trying to do things under their own power and make different decisions, which oftentimes included worshiping other gods. And they would do that until God gave them over to their enemies. And then things would get really bad. And they would say, God, where are you? And God would hear their cry. And he would renew them with a leader or with power or with something else. And he would build them back up until they grew strong and forgot, and this cycle repeats itself over and over and over again throughout the Bible. And it shouldn't surprise us, I mean, after all, again, what were Adam and Eve tempted with in the garden? Fruit, and fruit is so delicious. I must have the fruit. No, they were tempted with what? God is in this position, but you could be in that position. All you got to do is eat this, and boom, you're on top. You can have the power. So we know something about us. We know that we can't necessarily be trusted with power. Because once we have the power sort of built up in us, once we feel strong, we lose sight of where that power comes from. And we see it happen to all different sorts of leaders within the Bible, Abraham, Moses, David, every king that followed, we see it sneak into, so we know something we can just recognize. We, we really shouldn't be trusted with power. And it's hard for us to remember that God is the, where the power comes from and not start to think like we are the place where the power comes from. Now, our main passage this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So open your Bibles up there. Um, Paul is a fascinating guy. Like, his story is so over the top, and, and I, I love it. But, you know, he was a guy who, keep in mind, he, he was a guy who very clearly knew who was inside the circle and outside the circle. And Christians were outside the circle. Jesus was not in the middle, by the way. (laughs) Jesus was also outside the circle. And so he went around persecuting and killing Christians until one day he has a vision on the road. He goes and spends a few days in the dark. 
And when he comes out, he's ready to speak and to share the gospel powerfully about who Jesus is. But he goes through this thing, which is so important for us to see, this passage here. From 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6-10, through 10. He's, been, he's been going down the line of these things that have been happening to him because of Jesus. And, you know, I've been tortured and beaten and, you know, all these things because of Jesus. And here's what he says. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, meaning I've got a lot to say in terms of boasting. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, there are so many things that fascinate me about this verse and this passage and and the entire thought process that Paul is going through. And we, we have to understand that as an early Christian leader, Paul pretty much had it all. I mean, he was going through the power of God to the places he wanted to go. He, the whole, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a smart dude that was figuring things out and forming churches. Like his words, his writing, his presence was forming these early Christian communities. But somewhere along the line, he had this one major problem. And the major problem was that he was in danger of forgetting who he was and where his power was coming from. This is what he was in danger of. He calls it simply becoming conceited. And so, in answer to this, God gives him a problem or allows a problem, or permits a problem, however you want to phrase that. But it's clear that God's hand is in him having this problem. It gets through the lines. And he calls it a a messenger from Satan. And so Paul has done what we do when we have a problem or when something negative or bad has come up in our lives. What does he do? He prays that God will take that problem away. Now, we need to dig a little here, all right? So everybody get out your tiny shovels. We need to dig a little bit, okay? What is it in Paul's thinking that drives him to say, if this thing were gone, I would be a better Christian? What is his perception? Then he could be perfect. Okay, so let's think about this for a second. His perception is, I'm doing all these things, I'm so powerful, I'm going, I'm being jailed, I'm being beaten, all these things, but I have this thing, so I prayed for God to remove these things. And why do we pray for God to remove these things? Because, I know I'm talking fast, but I'll take a breath. 
Because we believe that the life we're supposed to live is free of what? Pain. What else? Problems. What else? Sin. What else? Suffering. Difficulty. Challenges. And so he looks at this and he says, Oh, if this thing were gone from me, I would be so much better than I am right now. And so he prays to God for deliverance. And what do we think? What do we think God should do when we pray to God for deliverance? Deliver us. Take it away because I'll be who you want me to be when I don't have this anymore. And what does God say? No. God says no. Now, there is something that I had never seen in this passage before. And I didn't see it until I was teaching it at Pepperdine in front of a bunch of people. He says no, but he says something really important. He says something really important to you. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said no to me. But then what's the next thing he says? Look at this. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Before we get to talking about why it's there, I want us to pause for a second and to recognize that the first thing that God says to him about this thorn is, I've forgiven you for this. I've forgiven you for this. My grace is enough to cover you as you live your life with this thorn. You think the life you should live is thorn-free, but it's not. My grace is sufficient for you. That's the first thing he says about it. And then he gets to this place I will forgive you for this weakness, but I will not take away the weakness. And the reason why is this. My power is made perfect in weakness, not in a lack of weakness, not in taking away weakness. It is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. Not in the absence of it. So chew on that for a moment. Because Paul believed again that he needed this thing to be gone in order for him to be an effective servant and God said no. And the reason why was because as long as Paul had this weakness that he could not overcome, he could not forget then that it was God's power that was pushing him forward. And that it was God in him that was accomplishing all these different things. His weakness would constantly remind him of the one thing we always forget in a practical way. Our need for God. When? Always. At all times. In all things. In all places. We do not face a scenario or a place or a time where we don't need God. We need Him in all things. In all times. In all places. And when He remembered His need for God, God then did great things for Him through His own power and not Paul's. The compelling story that Christianity has to tell is not the story of people who live such great lives. 
That's not the story. The story that we have to tell is not how much God has accomplished through us. That's not what the gospel is. The story that we have to tell is that we are broken and that God has still made something of us. God doesn't want us to be weak, but he knows that when we get a taste of power that it changes us, that when we feel capable, we forget about him. And so God wants us to be strong, but with one kind of strength. His strength. That is made, brought into life when we know We're broken. The title of this lesson was Duct Tape Can't Fix It. Why Some Things Need to Stay Broken. I want you to know that the only good thing about me is God. I want other people to know that the only good thing about me is God. When they see me, I am more than happy with them seeing failure, and brokenness. But if they can see God in my failure and brokenness, then that story changes. I remember in the first year when I was here, I was telling you about some of the things that I've been through in my life, my depression, anxiety, and being hospitalized and kind of losing myself for a while. And it's something that I continue to go through and deal with and struggle with. But I remember my good friend John Machado came up to me one day and he says, Bryce, you've mentioned this a few times now. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And he says, well, you should stop saying that. And I said, well, why? And he says, because people are going to think that something is really actually wrong with you. And I said, well, John, <laughs> would you like an alphabetical list? Or would you like, like chronological? Like, where do we go with that? Like, we are still afraid. Like, it's a scary thing to show that there are things in our lives that are broken, that we are in fact broken. So I want to take you through some things, just a couple of things to keep in mind when we talk about brokenness and we look at ourselves. Number one, all of us are broken, period. There is no exception to the rule. Everyone is broken, period. Everyone has skeletons in their closet. And, and I saw someone wrote this recently, and I thought it was such a good way to put this. They said, all of us have a written chapter that we don't read out loud. It's good. It's good. Paul puts it plainly in Romans chapter 3 by saying that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. There is no one. There is no one who is good enough. And oh sure, we say we are all sinners, but somehow even the statement becomes some sort of disingenuous escape clause for us because we've said it for so long. We are not just sinners. We are broken. There is something fundamentally wrong with us. And even though we are made in the image of God, we are not always those who are seen as close to God. And when we are given the opportunity to choose something other than God, we have shown over and over again that we can do that. So, let's just get it out of the way. We're all broken. We're all broken. Number two, our brokenness is not, you know what? Oh, thank you. Bonnie's got my back. Uh, our brokenness is not something we should try to hide. This is, now, this is where the rubber meets the road, okay? 
It's not something we should try to hide. My, I just have to tell you this. this is, I wish I could express to you the depth of the truth of this. I will tell anyone anywhere about what happened to me. I will explain to them how I didn't know if I loved my wife anymore and told her so. How I didn't think I believed in God anymore and told him so. How I couldn't have found my way out of a cardboard box with God knocking on the top. And I cannot tell you how my willingness to speak the truth about who I am has set other people free to do the same thing. Like, has set other people to say, I struggle with something too. I, I had the opportunity to speak at uh, Rincon Valley Christian School a couple of times, and I shared with them a lot of that. And I would be waiting in a hallway or something or waiting outside to use a bathroom, and like kids would sneak up to me and say, my parents don't believe in depression, but thank you for telling me that it's okay for me to still love God and be depressed. And I said, you're welcome. But the power of being able to just say, yeah, like this is me, this will always be me. And it's because of this. Our brokenness makes us more real. Look, we live in a world that hurts. And when Christians act like we don't hurt too, we lose people because they can't identify with us. Well, I've just given it all over to God. <laughs> Maybe you have, but <laughs> there's a story to be told there. Our brokenness makes us more real because we live in a broken, broken world. And the Jesus that people want to meet is not the Jesus that makes perfect people, but the Jesus who really loves imperfect people. That's the Jesus that people want to meet through us. Next one, our strength is built on a foundation of brokenness. That's when we're strong, when we know we're weak. It is then that we allow the power of God to flow through us. So maybe we need to rethink a little bit what strength looks like if it's coming through brokenness instead of coming from a public perception of who we are or should be. But that takes us to this last point here. I have more that I could do, but I'll do it some other time. This is what makes the story that we have so powerful. This is what makes what we have to say to people life-changing. It's that what it's that we are broken people that God is doing something through. And so I'm going to say this. You, and at first, you're going to want to disagree with me here, but hear me out. Because sometimes within us, I would say a lot of the time, what is broken stays broken. Now, our perception of healing is that God, again, takes that away or heals us from it so that it's gone. But that's really kind of a false notion of what we see and even what we've seen this morning. It's a false notion of what it means to be healthy and whole. It, it would be like, you know, I wasn't depressed when I was 12, but I am now. But I have to put back on that jacket I wore when I was 12. It's not necessarily a fat guy in a little coat, but it's at least big guy in a little coat. 
because it doesn't fit anymore. What is broken in us stays broken. And there may be scars or there may be marks in the bones where things that have apart have come together, but it's not all the same as it was before. And that's okay. That's okay. That things that have been broken stay broken. And we don't like this because we think it's a bad thing. But it really isn't a bad thing. Why? Because God does something better than take it away or make it like it never happened. God takes what is broken in us and he redeems it for something else. And get this, he turns us into something different and new. You don't become a new creation without walking away from the old creation. You don't, you don't mend from brokenness without having brokenness. You, you don't, you, we need those things to remind us. And it doesn't mean that God gives us something, I, I, and we could go on about this. It doesn't mean that all the time God gives us something so that we will break down and learn a lesson, but what it does mean is that God is able to take something that is broken and turn it into something else. And the power that we have, whatever power it is, is the power to go out to people who are broken and to say to them, God loves you. And I know that because God loves me. And brother, you better believe I'm pretty messed up. Let me tell you about what God has done with this really weird, imperfect, broken person. And let me tell you about how my life isn't perfect just because I came to Jesus. And let me tell you about how I still struggle with depression and anxiety. Let me tell you how I still have to wake up every day and do this. And that. Let me tell you how I constantly try to take things away from God, even though I know he's the one that can... Let me tell you those stories. Let me tell you those stories. Because at the end of all of those stories is a God who is capable of making something new and beautiful out of something old and broken. new and beautiful out of old and broken. We are broken, but God redeems. We are weak, but God is strong. We fail, but God never will. And isn't it better, church? Isn't it better that we have a God who meets us in this confused, dirty, broken down place and makes something new out of us? Isn't that better than an than anything that anyone else could look for or find. The God who meets you in your brokenness and the God who lifts you and the God who changes who you are and where you've been and what you've done and he gives you 
a new ending to the story. In church, that's what people want. They want a new ending. Where their brokenness isn't the story. It's just the way to redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your son Jesus. We are grateful for the way that you sent him to us while we were still sinners. That you know everything that's wrong with us. And so God, I pray that you would give us the courage, that you would give us the courage to say, we are people who are broken. We are people who are weak. We are people with problems. But we are in relationship with a God who loves us and redeems us. God, may that be the story that this world hears from us who know Jesus. May it not be a circle with Jesus in the middle, but may it just be Jesus without walls or borders that people can come to and they can experience the same redemption and healing and love that we get from you in every moment of every day. And God, may our weakness and brokenness not tear us down, but God, may it encourage us because we know that somehow, some way, you are redeeming and working and doing because when we are weak, you are strong. Thank you for this. And it's through the name of Jesus who makes all this possible, we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you as you are and who wants to redeem the things that are in your life, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing a song together.